Well, what a great morning we've had already, right? I mean, it has been a powerful morning of worship, and I'm just so glad you guys are here. We're kicking off a series today on prayer, and we have such a gift uh, with us today. One of my dear friends from college, Chad Myers, is here to speak to us. You know, one of my favorite things about uh, going to a Bible college, and it was at Columbia International University. I know several of our staff actually went to school there, but one of the most exciting things has been coming out of school and seeing our different friends spread out across the country making an incredible impact for the kingdom of God. And Chad is someone who has been making an incredible impact for the kingdom. He works at a church in St. Louis, Missouri. He's been there around 17 years doing ministry as uh, one of the teaching pastors there. And it is such a gift to have him here. He's a dear friend of mine. And I just want us to give him a great Mount Horeb welcome as he comes to the stage. Chad Myers. Good morning. Can we keep that going for the worship team and the production team? I told them... I said, hey, can we just hit repeat after that whole first set, and then I'll come up and pray, and we'll call it church? That would be worth it, and uh, so it's a a privilege and an honor to be with you today. Uh, I'm flying solo this weekend. Uh, My family is back in St. Louis, and they're joining us via live stream, so hey, beautiful family. Here's a picture of us on vacation eating ice cream. Who ain't happy when you're on vacation eating ice cream? That's all smiles, and uh, I got this text from my 13-year-old earlier this morning. She said this, have a good day at church, church emoji. Dad, you will do great, thumbs up, heart eyes. I believe in you, kissy heart smile. Like, oh, that doesn't just melt your heart. Thanks, Mace. (laughs) You know, um, coming in as a guest communicator is a little bit like going in as a backup quarterback. People expect more failure than success, and that's on your side. So if you move the ball down a little bit and maybe get it in the end zone, people go crazy. But if you fumble or throw an interception, it's a turnover. People are like, hey, just give them grace. It's the backup. That was my pep talk to myself this morning. Chad, you're the backup. Don't screw it up. I like to set the bar low so that when I step over it, I feel good about myself. Some of you should try that. We are uh, starting a new series today. It's called Call Upon His Name, and it's a four-week series on prayer. But it's tied to the names of God, four different names of God as revealed in, in scriptures. And one of the things I love about what your staff has done with this is they're tying it, prayer, to a motivation, asking the question, how can knowing this about God, this characteristic, this attribute, And I don't mean merely cognitive knowing. When the Bible talks about knowing, it's a holistic knowing. It's an existential knowing. It's an experiential knowing. How can knowing God in this way change the way I pray? How can knowing God in this way change the way I pray? And if you're anything like me, you need motives for prayer. You need motivation for prayer. Think about it. If prayer is like the engine pulling a train, a locomotive, there's a lot of precious cargo on that thing. It's pulling life change, heart change, kingdom of God, defending against the kingdom of darkness. It's pulling forgiveness, grace, mercy, 
reconciliation conversations. That's some precious cargo. Of course it's going to need fuel for the fire. So there's no shame needing motives to pray. And today we're going to talk about how can knowing the God who sees us change the way we pray. How can knowing God as the God who sees us increase our courage in prayer, increase our honesty in prayer, increase our vulnerability in prayer individually and collectively? And I think there's something here for us special today. We all have this desire to be seen and to be delighted in. That's part of the goodness of the human condition, to be seen and to be delighted in for who we are. And uh, that's why we dress up. That's why we try to get noticed. That's why we post a lot and then we look for the likes. You see this a lot in children. It's very intuitive in children. It's unfiltered. They're, you know, If you have kids, they're always like, notice me, notice me, look at me, look at me. Or maybe you see it in grandkids. Or maybe you've randomly seen a kid this week and you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I, uh, I was speaking at our Saturday night service about a month ago and me and my wife have four kids and on Saturday, I always have this dilemma. She works on Saturday. So my dilemma is, do I bring all four kids with me to church? Do I leave some of them at home? How is this gonna work out? And I'm trying to manage the situation. Well, this day I brought our two youngest kids with me, my nine-year-old son, Boaz, and my seven-year-old daughter, Isabella. Her name is Izzy. And uh, right before we're about to go into service and I have to preach that night, they say to me, hey, Dad, we don't think we should have to go to church tonight because we're going to be here tomorrow morning and we'll have to be here for two services. That sounded reasonable. So I thought, okay, why don't you guys go to the youth room and you just stay there, but you have to promise me, promise me that you're going to stay in the youth room. Have you ever made an agreement with a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old and you thought to yourself, this is going to work out? <laughs> We're three songs deep into the service. It's about to be offertory and then I have to stand up to preach. We have a 1,600-seat auditorium and out of my peripheral, I see something coming down the aisle fast. And they round the corner and sure enough, it's my two youngest kids, but they're not alone. You see, in the youth room, we had just had this event for middle schoolers called Ninja Camp. And there were these foam weapons at Ninja Camp. So they have these four to five foot tall ninja weapons made out of PVC pipe, pool noodles, and hot pink duct tape. I'm not making this stuff up. And they run right in front of me, middle of the third song, and they're like, you know, their faces are glowing. They're like, Dad! And I'm like, What? are you doing? I'm having church. And they're like, look at our weapons. And I'm like, I see it. And they're like, we're going to fight you. And I'm like, that's very true. We are going to engage in a fight after this. And I say, you guys got to get out of here. I have to preach in a minute. They're like, okay. You know, when you whisper, yell, like that's appropriate. And so sure enough, I try to grab them and usher them out the middle aisle and they leave and they stay gone. <laughs> and I hear stories of these two hooligan kids running down the center aisle in the middle of church, fist pumping their weapons over their head like they're victorious <laughs> off some battlefield. We all have this desire to be seen and to be delighted in. But we live east of Eden. We live in a post-Genesis 3 world and our lives 
are often not characterized by being seen and be delighted in. It's characterized by alienation. One of the core terrors of humanity this side of Genesis 3 is invisibility. We are afraid that we are not seen. And so we hide. We hide our voice. We hide our talent. We hide our struggles. We hide our shame. We hide our gifts. We hide. And then we wonder why we're locked up in our prayer life. We wonder why there's not a lot of depth and intimacy in our core relationships. We wonder why we go to work, but we feel half-hearted. It's because there's this large portion of our existence that hasn't been brought into the light. And I wonder if talking about the God who sees might set us free today because we need to know this about God. God sees the unseeable so that we can say the unsayable. God sees the unseeable. He sees us in all of those unseen places so that we might say the unsayable. That's the name of God that is revealed today for us. It's El Ra'i. Everybody say that with me. El Ra'i. Very good. Now say El Roy. There's a correct way, and then there's a way to say it that makes God sound like he's from southern Arkansas. Nothing against southern Arkansas or people named Roy. But this is the God who sees or the God who sees me, El Ra'i. And how can being seen by God fuel the fire of our prayer life? So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 16. I invite you to turn there. You can follow along on the screen. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 16, the story of Abram and Sarai and Hagar. And we're going to camp out there, but we'll also dance around into a few other scriptures asking this question, how might knowing that God sees us change the way we pray and the way we interact with each other? And we're going to see a few things in this passage. I'm going to give us a little bit of background, then I'll catch us up in verse 7. So most of you are familiar with the story. God has given Abram a promise in Genesis 15, and the promise goes something like this, I will bless you. I will make you a great nation, I will give you land, and I will use you to bring a universal blessing to the earth and its inhabitants. It's a very broad scope promise. And Abram and Sarah are later in years, and so they receive this promise, and God gives it to them. But Genesis chapter 16 shows up, and they still don't have a male child. There's no heir, and you can't have descendants without an heir. And so Sarah says to Abram, why don't you sleep with my maidservant, my Egyptian slave, Hagar? And so Abram agrees to this, and Hagar becomes pregnant. And as soon as she becomes pregnant, she starts to look at Sarah with some contempt, and now there's problems in the home. This is Sister Wives Genesis 16 version. Now there's problems in the home and Sarah starts to get upset with Abram and she says to him like, this is your fault. May the wrong you did be done to you. You were supposed to say no and you didn't. This is on you. And he says to her, well, it's your servant. Like treat her as you want to. And so Sarah does. And Sarah mistreats her. She mistreats her so much that Hagar flees. And she flees out into the wilderness pregnant. That catches us up in verse 7. It says, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she said. 
Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. In verse 13, so she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, el Rai. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Why is it significant that she's seen the one who sees her? We'll get there later. That is why the well was called Be'er Lachai Ra'i. It's still there between Kadesh and Bered, and that means the well of the living one who sees me. The question for us is how can we identify and relate to the places that Hagar understands and in need of the God who sees? And I think we'll see a few things in this passage. God sees us in our suffering, he sees us in our shame, and he sees our secret potential. He sees us in our suffering, our shame, and he sees our secret potential. First, he sees Hagar and us similarly in our suffering. Now, it's weird for us because we approach the text with 2019 Westerner mindset and ears, and we look back on this ancient text and we say, a lot of things sound really, really strange. Um, like, what's the deal with Abram and Sarah, and why did she uh, initiate this in the first place, and he agreed to it, and it all seemed kind of like that was an okay thing. The, the issue was, is in the culture, that was an okay thing. That was a normal, expected happenstance that if the wife could not bear any children or could not bear a male child uh, to bring descendants and carry on the namesake, then it was very common if they had a maidservant, one that was very close to them, that they would invite them to sleep with a husband and that that male heir, if she became pregnant, would be considered full heir. It was very common practice. And so before we criticize and uh, pick apart Abram and Sarah too much, remember, they don't have Genesis 1. That comes later. Moses wrote that. They don't have that text to look at about what marriage uh, could be and should be. And yet we get a little indication from the text that polygamy doesn't work out. There's a lot of tension in it. But nevertheless, Hagar becomes pregnant. And she's pregnant, and then she begins to look with contempt upon Sarah. You can imagine all the, the tension there and the jealousies. And then Sarah says to Abram, you know, what, what have you done? And Abram says, well, do what you want to. And so she mistreats her. She mistreats her. It says this in verse 6. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think is best. So she did. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, and so she fled from her. Check this out. The angel of the Lord found Hagar. Near a spring in the desert, it was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And why is that significant? We don't know what the mistreatment was. The author didn't seem fit to put that in there for us. Maybe it was looks, raise of an eyebrow. Maybe it was withholding kindness, withholding affection. Maybe it was inciting gossip against Hagar, kind of turning the household and the community against her. Maybe it was verbal abuse. Maybe it was physical abuse. And Hagar's status is a slave, so in that time and in that place, all of that would have been on the table as fair game, and she couldn't have done anything about it. And so she's mistreated so much that she flees. And the text says here that she flees, and she's on the way to Shur, where the angel of the Lord finds her. Isn't that a wonderful short phrase? The angel of the Lord found her. We have a missionary God a God who pursues, a God who chases after. 
You know, sometimes we think about God like this, that he's this passive God and he's sitting on the throne and he's kind of just like calling out to us like, hey, I hope you guys figure it out and I hope you, you know, come to me and, and, and understand that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But that's not the picture of God that the Bible presents. God is an active God. He is an on-mission God. Uh, as Charles Spurgeon said, he's the hound of heaven. He's seeking us out. And even in her flight, an escape, attempted escape, God finds her. He sees her. The angel of the Lord showed up. And, and, and it's interesting that it says that she was on the way to Shur because we know a little about, uh, bit about the geography at that time. This is the wilderness region in northwest Sinai between Canaan, the promised land, and Egypt. And so she's fled. She's probably 70 miles now. She traveled 10 miles a day. She's about a week travel, on foot, pregnant, unprotected, in hostile territory, alone. She is the definition of vulnerable. She's exposed. And that's when God shows up. Interesting thing about sure is that it also means this. It means a literal wall of fortresses. Do you see what's going on here? She, it's so painful in her previous situation that she tries to escape the pain and look for outside protection. Can you relate? It's so painful in her previous status that she tries to escape the pain and look for outside or other protection. Now, I don't think this text is saying anything to us about abusive relationships or harmful relationships, and uh, that's definitely a necessary conversation to have, but I'm just a guest in your house. I'll leave that to somebody else. But notice this. Isn't that often how we react to pain? When there's suffering. When it gets hard. When it becomes too much to bear. We say, God, get me out of that. And that becomes our prayer. God, get me out of here. I don't want to deal with it. And often we go to these other defenses or we put up defenses. That's how I react when I'm in pain. I can quickly turn on the walls of defense. Don't come near me. I'm hurting. Recently, I was uh, in a small car accident. I was rear-ended and I had some pain in my back and my neck. And so I went to the chiropractor. And uh, they did an initial diagnostic. They took some x-rays of me. And uh, then he did something that I hadn't experienced at the chiropractor before. He says, why don't you stand up and uh, we're just going to examine your posture. So I'm like, okay. So I stand up and he's looking me over and down and whatever else. And he's looking at the side of me. And I'm like, what's he going to do? And then he just starts talking out loud. He just starts saying everything that's wrong with my posture. He says, you know, oh, irregular curvature in the neck. Uh, shoulders are lopsided, uh, right hips taller than the left one, uh, left foot flare. And I'm like, you can't just say that about somebody you're standing in front of. You got to prepare somebody for that kind of stuff. I mean, like internally, I'm ready for a fist fight. I think at the end of that, I said, your shirt's crinkled. <laughs> Take that. My defenses went up. I felt exposed. And that's left to our own devices. That's our natural reaction. When it's, when it's painful, when we feel exposed, when they're suffering, we got to put those defenses up. And God says, I, I need to get past those defenses. You need to be seen in your suffering. And God shows up and he sees her. And friends, I'm going I'm to say a hard truth to you, but I think you can handle it. Sometimes 
when we're in those places, we often pray to escape suffering when I think God might be inviting us to pray to embrace suffering. Do you see that? We often pray to escape the pain when God is often inviting us to embrace the pain. That's why James 1 says, hey, stay in those trials. Like, stay right there. Sit in it. It's hard. I get it. You want to jump out. You want to say too much. But don't short circuit the work of God because God doesn't necessarily take us out of the pain, but he moves us through the pain. That's where some of his best transformative work happens in our life is when we allow those things to run their course and we get to know God and ourselves and the community in a way that we never would have experienced if we hit the eject button. And friends, let me just say this. Do you notice what God does? He doesn't try to fix her. This is a lesson for all of us. People in pain, we don't really want advice. We don't want to be fixed. We want to be related to. We want to be identified with. We want to be seen. And we, we need our, our pain to be seen. Some of you have been in physical pain for a long time. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have some emotional pain. It's, it's, it's hard in the marriage relationship or the parenting relationship. And there's pain there. Some of you have other types of pain. Teenagers, some of you struggle with a whole lot of anxiety and a whole lot of loneliness and that's a lot of pain for you. And we need to know that God sees us in those places. He doesn't try to fix us, but he weeps with us. Friends, he's the all-vulnerable God. And if that's true, then in some way, shape, or form, he's always weeping. Because there's always pain in his creatures and in his children. God sees us in our suffering. But he also sees us in our shame. He sees us in our shame. Have you ever done something in public and uh, then you realize it got noticed by other people and you're mildly embarrassed and you really only have like two options at that time. Like you can acknowledge it, you can look at them and acknowledge it or you can just ignore it. Like have you ever cut somebody off in traffic and then at the stoplight they actually pull up next to you and you know they're looking at you but this is your game? Uh huh, yeah, oh no it's good, I'm doing fine. Some of y'all did that this morning. I know you did. You got to own that. We have those options of I can pretend like this didn't even happen. I was at Six Flags recently with two of my kids. Why do all my stories have like two kids in them? I don't know. I got to figure that out. I was at Six Flags and the lines were really, really long to get in. And so I'm standing in line and we're waiting there and it's like 30 minutes and it's all messy and you're not sure which line's where, but they're all going in. And, and surely, uh, you know, and long lines, there's going to be people that look at the lines and they start to have a conversation with themselves and it goes something like this. I don't want to stand in this line. Maybe I don't have to stand in this line. Am I the kind of person that maybe I have a special ticket and it gets me past all of these poor fools waiting in this line? You ever had that conversation with yourself? A lot of people had that conversation that day because as I was standing in line with my two kids for about 30 to 35 minutes, sure enough, People just start rolling up and cutting in line. They teach you that in kindergarten. Don't do that. They start rolling up and cutting in line and they, they, they play it off like, oh, I, I don't know. Can we go in there? And I said, is this the right way? I'm not sure. And they start to keep going and going. And friends, I'm not saved enough to be silent in that moment. Y'all can pray for me. I'm not that guy. 
And so we get closer to the, to the gate, and sure enough, this family of five just comes creeping in the side, and they go in about two people in front of me, and they just stand there face forward. And I'm like, no, you didn't. So I, I roll up to the husband, and I'm like, I tap him on the shoulder, and I said, sir, this is the line over here, um, the one that looks like the line, and me and my kids have actually been waiting in it for 30 minutes. Do you know what he did? He straight ignored me. He went full on mannequin. He's face front, and I'm like, I know you are not ignoring me. So you know what I did? I tapped him again, just a little bit harder. It wasn't a full on shove, but I tapped him again. Sir, this is the line. Do you realize this is the line? Isn't it funny how sometimes when we know we've done something and we know we've been caught, like we want to pretend, oh, no, 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 nobody see me, nobody see me here. That's a playful illustration of often that something happens in much deeper and darker ways for some of us. In deeper and darker ways, there's shame in our lives. And we want to pretend and ignore that it's not crippling us. Thankfully, a lot of research has been done uh, recently with people like Brene Brown and Kurt Thompson about the issue and topic of shame. And they differentiate between shame and guilt. You know what the difference is? Guilt can, is, it can be redemptive. It can be healthy. It says, I've done wrong, and I need to own that. It takes, you take responsibility for it. Shame can never be redemptive. It only has the power to destroy because it says this, I am wrong. I'm worthless. I'm not valuable. I don't have any deservability. People filled with shame or even pockets of shame are filled with self-loathing and self-contempt and they don't think that they matter, and they don't think that anybody sees them or delights in them. And I know some people in this room have pockets of shame. Now look at verse eight. Look at verse eight. How does shame show up in Hagar? And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Now you look at that verse and you think, well, it doesn't say shame, but that's, that's the craftiness of shame. If it's really out loud, it's pretty obvious, right? When people shame each other on the internet, you look at that and you're like, oh, that's shame. It's not healthy. We shouldn't do that. But where shame gets its power is it goes stealth and it goes secret. And it's often things that maybe happened to us or things that weren't said or our experience or maybe something we did and we internalize that as shame and shame only has the power to beget more shame and notice what God says to Hagar. He names it for her. This is how God sees her. He says what? Slave of Sarai. That's her shame. Her status is her shame. She was born with it. She couldn't get out of it, and she had to feel it every single day of her life. I don't have any say in this conversation. I don't have any weight in this house. I don't have any uh, validation, right? I'm not invited to the table. And she felt that every single day of her life. And what does God do? He goes straight to it, but notice what he does. He asks a question. This is just for free. If you ever want to pique your curiosity, uh, do a study on the questions that God asks humanity. It's incredible, starting with this one. This is an incredible thing. He knows she's filled with shame, so what does he say to her? Where have you come from and where are you going? Notice what he doesn't say to her. He doesn't go to motive. Why did you do this? Why did you leave? Why are you here? He doesn't do that because you know what that would have done? 
immediate defenses, immediate walls. And God knew that he had to get to a safe place with Hagar. It actually reminds me of Genesis chapter three, the conversation that God has with Adam and Eve. They are fully vulnerable. They're fully naked and exposed beforehand and they're okay with that and that's how it was supposed to be. But they rebel against God and then they realize that they're exposed and so what do they do? They put fig leaves on what? Their most vulnerable parts. That's how shame works. The most vulnerable parts of our lives, we want to hide and cover up and we want to cover over and we want to pretend that we can hide from God and others. And what does God say when he approaches them? It's a brilliant question, especially as parents. It should hit us like a ton of bricks. He says, where are you? It's just intimacy and longing and relationship. Where are you? Where are you? And this question that God asks reveals that God is the safest person in the universe. That he knows he has to get to a safe place so that they can find some type of healing in the parts of them that they feel ashamed of. And so he asks them, where are you? And he asks Hagar, where have you come from and where you're going? And God knows that I can't do it any other way because the minute I become unsafe to these creatures, they're going to be terrified and they're going to shut me out. And he goes straight to it. So if you ever want to ask yourself, am I becoming more like Jesus? Ask this question, am I a safe person? Can I hold people well in their struggles with light and darkness? Or do I judge and condemn them? Because God never judges and condemns. He only seeks to bring healing in our life. And that's why he asks these questions. He sees us in our shame. Let me tell you this. The only antidote to shame is vulnerability. It's the only antidote to shame. To put theological words on it, it's confession. Is confession. This is what James 5 says. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Did you notice what he said? And I know he's speaking to me. Therefore, confess your sins. I get that part. I'm usually decent at that part, honestly. I'm like, okay, God, here's all my stuff. Like, here's what's going on. I confess. I know I need help. I know I need forgiveness. I know I need to change. Do you notice what he said? One to another. And sometimes we wonder why we haven't got any traction in the darker places of our life because we haven't invited the healing that comes through being seen through the community of faith. And it's scary, and there's always a risk in vulnerability, but I guarantee you there are safe people around. There are safe people around. And I tell you this from my own experience. 10, 12 years ago, I started to have people in my life that I needed to get really honest with. One of them was my wife, and I had some few other people, and they were really safe. And I started to tell them things about my past, and about my present, and about my motives, and about my struggles, and about my thoughts. And you know what they did? They held me well in those places. And I promise you, and I don't say this lightly, I promise you, I have seen healing through those places over a long period of time. And I have stepped more and more into who God has made me to be by taking that one step. And I encourage you to do the same. He is the God who sees us 
in our suffering. He sees us in our shame, and he sees us in our secret potential. Look at verse 9, 16 verse 9. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Did you notice what happens? He's about to change her status. He's about to pull her out of the mire of shame. She stays out in the wilderness. She bears a child or she finds some safety back behind the walls of Shur. She bears a child. That's about the end of her story. But he says to her, no, 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 no. I have another plan for you and you don't even see it. You have potential. So I want you to go back. I want you to embrace the suffering. I want you to be elevated out of the shame because you have a secret potential that it's about to turn the whole household upside down. And that family's got dysfunction. That's true. They need to work some stuff out as we all do. But he sends her back and he says, you have a secret potential that I'm going to use. This is sounds very much like Genesis 15. I'm going to make your descendants so numerous. People can't even count them. Gosh, what did that do to Hagar in that moment? She went back and it changed her status in the family. She had seen God and been seen by God. And now she's going to, she has a promise from God and she's going to have descendants too numerous to count. And how are you going to be provided for when you get a little older in age by having a lot of descendants and people who will take care of you and provide for? And God sees her in this moment. And friends, I firmly believe this. That everyone in this room, young, old, male, female, doesn't matter. Everyone in this room has a secret potential that is waiting to be unleashed. And only you can bring it forward. We need you to bring it to the table. We need you to come out of hiding. You have a secret talent. You have a secret gift. You have a secret genius. You have a secret perspective, a way of thinking, a way of feeling, a way of showing up and showing off. And we need you to come out of hiding. Because you're the one that's going to tear that little corner off the darkness. And as a community of faith, we can't be the mosaic. We can't be the fullest expression of who we are when we're not doing that together. But be careful. Don't mistake potential for pride. Don't mistake potential for pride. Like I did. Let me give you an illustration. So as Grace Marie said, I went to CIU and uh, I, was, I was a hard worker. I was a, I was a good student, wasn't I? I was a hard worker and I thought that I, I needed to present my intelligence to the world. I thought that was it, right? And so I, people would be out on Friday and Saturday night and they'd be out like hanging out and doing normal college stuff. And I was in the library. It's not a lie. I was studying I was miserable, but I was studying really hard and I was preparing for the test and I was, I was getting good grades and I graduated CIU 3.89, summa cum laude. And then I went to seminary, same story. Second verse, same as the first, you know what I mean? And so I go through seminary and I'm working really hard and people around me are paying a price for that and I graduate seminary in 2015, 3.95, summa cum laude. Do you know how many people have asked me since I graduated, hey, what was your GPA back in college or in seminary? I don't even need hands to count them. And that bothered me. It bothered me. 
I thought, don't you see me? I've worked so hard for this. Don't you notice me? Like, this is a really big deal. Don't mistake pride for potential. Hear this, because where we think we need to be noticed may be where our ego needs to be neglected. Ooh, mm. Where we think we need to be noticed may be where our ego needs to be neglected. Some of you, you've been overlooked and overlooked and overlooked and overlooked and it's driving you crazy and you're like, look at this great part about me. And maybe it's pride more than real potential. And you say, well, what's the difference? Here's the difference. When you start to recognize that that gift, that that genius, that that special bag of gold that you have is actually for the blessing of the world, then it comes potential. That it's actually supposed to serve others, then it becomes potential. But when it is used for our own ego strokes or for our own getting noticed, it just stays in the pride realm. And it doesn't actually fully become potential. But when by God's grace we learn how to pivot on that. And then we learn how to take that. And use that gift to bless others for the common good of humanity around us. Whatever that might be. Then we start to realize oh that's potential. I don't even know if I recognize that. But that's potential. And it's impacting the world around me. And I'm actually starting to live more wholehearted. I'm starting to get out of that half hearted zombie like existence. And I feel like I'm planting both feet on the ground and making a difference. And this is actually a life worth living. That's what God wants for us to step in to that potential. We gotta pivot on our pride and use our gifts to serve others. And in order for your potential to be realized, it has to be recognized. It has to be seen. It has to be drawn out. It has to be called out. We need God to do that. And then by his grace, we start to cultivate that. We start to craft it and we bring it forward and it starts to impact others. One or a thousand doesn't really matter, but it starts to impact others. And we think, oh, that's what I'm here for. That's why I'm here. Now I'm living that abundant life that people start to talk about. God sees us in our secret potential. He sees us in our shame and he sees us in our suffering. But you may say to me, then why am I still stuck? Because I know all this. I have pretty good theology. I know God sees me in all these places. I know God's all-knowing and all-present. I know God, that he knows everything about me. Why am I still stuck? And I would say this. Did you notice what Hagar said? She said, I have seen the one who sees me. She made eye contact with him. Some of us haven't made eye contact yet. Because suffering turns our eyes to self. Shame turns our eyes downward to the floor. Pride keeps our eyes upward. And we have yet to make eye contact with the Savior who is always holding his gaze right at us. And we have yet to invite the community of faith into those scary places where we might pray bold prayers together for our realized potential and breaking free from shame and moving in and through suffering. Did you know all of these names of God found in the Old Testament are present in the incarnate Christ? They're present in the, in the person of Jesus. I'll close with this verse. Look at Hebrews 4. 
It says we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. That's eye contact. He sees you. He sees me. Have we made eye contact back with him? But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. God sees us in our suffering. How might we pray in and through that? God sees us in our shame. How might we invite others to join us in those dark places and bring about healing through confession? He sees our secret potential. What might we start praying for instead of staying stuck in pride so that we can really bring our gift to bear upon others around us for their growth and for our joy? He is the God who sees. He sees the unseeable so that we might say the unsayable. Would you pray with me? Father, what a privilege for your, to be in your word this morning. What a privilege to worship together with these incredibly gifted and heart-filled people. Thank you for letting me be with this congregation this morning. Father, some of us, we need to know that you see us and we need to act on it. But we don't have to leave here and think, I, I, I'm gonna do everything that I heard. I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna fully obey. We just need to leave here and take the next small step, whatever that is, to engage in prayer, to journal, to share with a friend, to be a safe person, to move past pride. Whatever that is, help us to take our next small step. We need your strength to be able to receive that word. We need your grace to be able to be empowered to do it. It's for your sake and for your glory that we pray in Christ's name, amen.